Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Number one, to help you write more. Number two, to help you write better. And number three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those two things. To that end, uh, I talk to other authors and ask them how they do it and uh, what their experience of making stories is. I also talk about my own experiences and harp on about specific topics related to the process of writing and making stories and occasionally I get you the listener to send in the first page of something you're working on something that you work very hard on and I offer feedback on ways that I think you could make it even better um, so that's the ba- that's the that's the basic way it shakes out. Today's episode, just so I can make sure that I get that in early on, um, is me chatting to uh, Deep uh, Anapara uh, about her well uh, about her experience as a writer and her general experience with stories and how she got there. But um, I suppose particularly the focus of our talk is about her debut novel, Jim Patrol on the Purple Line. I just need to like stop now. Like I, I never introduce an author and go, like I hate their work. By the way, it's rubbish. But I'm just giving you this interview for educational purposes. I always try to find ways of being positive about it, regardless of my personal experience with the book. Um, but I just want to say, if you haven't read *Gin Patrol on the Purple Line*. Um, can I just like make a personal recommendation to you to like go online onto some kind of book selling site that allows you to read the first couple of pages and you could even stop the you know you could even pause the podcast now or just queue it up for when you finished listening to us but just read the first couple of pages of this novel um I just think you I just think you'll read them and then go okay cool I'm I'm getting this I'm going to read this because this is this just sounds awesome and this voice is brilliant and I can see this is a book where my time isn't going to be wasted where I'm going to just I'm I'm just going to have a great great time um and that's not to say that it's not emotionally wrenching that's not to say it's not um a i'm not I'm not saying it's a lot it's a light read in the sense of it just being sort of jolly but it has great humor in it and points in all the the great kind of spectrum of um all the feels as uh people say uh on the internet you know it's really really good basically and i and my recommendation to you is I, I yeah just go and read the first couple of pages because I think that will sell you on the book basically that's how that was my experience of reading it as I started reading it and went very very early on in reading it went okay I'm invested in this I just was like yeah you know that feeling when you start reading a book and you go yeah all right I'm in I'm in <laughs> like here's my who who Here's here's my emotional investment now. I'm I've started reading and I'm now just jet, jettisoning all my skepticism and I'm 
you you have my investment now i'm willing to go with you on this journey that's how i felt starting to read this book was like yep yeah great cool you know that feeling of relaxing where you just go oh oh this is going to be a great story this author knows what they're doing cool i'm i'm in that's how i felt reading jim patrol on the purple line so um that's my you don't need my endorsement i'm not necessarily you know a particularly uh well well respected judge of books right so i i understand you don't need me to step in and go you you should read this because you might have different tastes than me but there's just my i just want to pass on my sincere experience here you know like and i do look like honestly like i don't always um connect with every book of every author i have on the show and i think it's if i if i if i did then i would think i would be casting my net too um too narrowly can you cast the net narrowly i don't know but um you know i try to have like a wide range of authors and styles and we have some non-fiction and poetry and stuff written for the stage and um, we've had some neuroscientists on here some people on the show don't even write books you know obviously i i i think it's good for me to have people on whose work that is you know is kind of my thing and and sometimes people whose work isn't particularly mine but might be yours so you can hear a wide range of views of different people working in different capacities making stories right um but just in this instance it just so happens that i really love the book and i think this was a really really fun engaging enlightening interview for me i had a lovely time i suspect you are going to enjoy hearing what uh deeper has to say as well i don't think i've got anything else much to say except if you uh like the show and you want to support it doesn't have a sponsor uh except li- the listeners so you can go there's a link in the show notes to uh, not on my website tinklepo.co.uk to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare if you go there and drop me a few beans helps me keep the lights on it just actually covers the costs of put putting this out um so if you think this is a useful resource um for writers and it helps me and it also allows me to keep it free uh at the point of consumption so there's no paywalls up there's no premium content um it's a completely equal system of stuff going out to anyone who wants it because i believe as far as i can in keeping writing resources free to help everyone who has access to the internet to um write so um if, if you could uh I, it really helps i like try not to talk about it too much but just put in a reminder at the beginning of every show because um a little bit from lots of listeners would make a huge difference uh to me in terms of my ability to do this and thank you to everyone who has helped support the show so far um also there's just links in the show notes to my novels um the honors and the ice house which i advise reading in that order um if you'd like to support what i do and you know i'm a full-time writer my only income is from writing and doing this podcast um so if you would like to support me and what I do and you'd like to read my stuff, then those books are available as well. And of course, there's going to be a, there's a link in the show notes to Deeper Anapara's book, Jim Patrol of the Purple Line, 
um, you can go and check it out there as well. I think that's it. I think we might as well get started, right? Um, obviously, this was recorded a little while back because um, me and Deepa are in the same room, um, but not that far. But not that far back. Uh, just you know, life has um, moved fast, hasn't it? And uh, we'll continue to do so, I'm sure. Uh, so I hope you enjoy listening to this chat between uh, me and uh, Deepa and Apara. Two separate channels, so I can just adjust okay. the levels. Right. Um, so, um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, and this is like a question that I, this is like a, a starter question that I use quite a lot, but I, I, I wanted to ask, what is the first story that you can, or one of the first stories that you can remember telling? Wow, that's quite tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it that, doesn't that, have to be the exact, but like an early story. I think it's probably, I, you know, embellished a story that I'd heard my grandmother say, I think. My great-grandmother, actually. She was alive when I was a child. So my grandmother's mother. And uh, so she used to tell us these kind of uh, mythical stories, something like fables. And there was something about a bird that had um, rescued a baby and was bringing up the baby as its own, oh. hunting food and then taking it back to the nest. And yeah, I really loved that story as a child. And I think I used to sort of repeat it to others, you know, adding my own stuff about what the bird would find or what the child grew up to become. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh, that sounds really. <laughs> that sounds really lovely. I like the idea that. Um... You were kind of like, even in a kind of like one step oral history that you were already kind of like sensing moments where like when you're retelling it to people where you're like, ah, I could add something here or I could change this. That sounds really nice. Did you, um, can you remember any sort of, what were the kind of first stories that when you were growing up, you kind of heard and were like, wow, or like, like an early story that you thought, oh, this is stories are pretty special actually or something like that yeah i think because you know as you said we grew up it was a pretty oral culture because i grew up in kerala which is in the south of india and uh, there are lots of these um stories typically from um mythology like uh, the ramayana and mahabharata which are you know hindu myths um and um they're they're just like epic narratives there's like a vast number of characters there's lots of wars there's like moral questions ethics and uh so i think uh when i was a child um we used to get uh this magazine at home uh in malayalam which is my mother tongue and uh, there would be um they used to serialize novels i was quite i, I remember i was very young um but there was a particular novel which is serialized that I used to look forward to each week. I remember waiting for the magazine and it was this story that a Malayalam writer had written which um, sort of looked at the Mahabharata which is an epic uh, from the point of view of you know one of the characters and you don't really he's quite central to the narrative but you don't really realize um, how the story changes um, unless it's told from his point of view. So you know as an epic it's like it's pretty much like the Bible, like everyone is aware of the main stories. But when I read um, that, you know, those excerpts of the novel, which used to come every week, I realized that 
um, from his point of view, everything looked different. And as a child, it was like this amazing realization that, you know, the same event, different people experience it differently. And for me, that was like this major aha moment, like, wow, this is what fiction can do. And, you know, you can really tell this from another point of view and like everything looks different. And yeah, so that was, you know, I think it was six or seven or maybe eight, I can't really remember, but around that age. And it was obviously like, I think like many introverts and kids who don't really go out to play. I was reading books, you know, well above whatever my age levels it was supposed to be for. So um, yeah, I think so reading that, um, you know, it was called the second in, in English, it would be translated as a second turn. And uh, that that for me was like the first moment I realized what like this is the power of fiction. And I think sort of it made me want to be a writer because I, I was reading a lot of books and uh, I thought maybe this is something that, you know, I'd like to try to do. Can I can I ask you the, who the character is that becomes this kind of viewpoint character for seeing this kind yeah. of vast sort of sprawling epic? So it's essentially a story of um, I don't know how much you know about the Mahabharata, but you know it's there are five um, there are five brothers in it, and they're sort of the central characters. And this is the third brother. His name is um, Beam, and he's you know a very strong muscular character with enormous like physical power, and he you know he can lift things, throw things, and like that is his role in the epic. But what this writer, his name is M.T. Vasudevan Nair, and what he did by switching it to his point of view was to show like him as fragile and having all these human emotions and how he felt sort of um, about how people looked at him as like this really physical person. But, you know, obviously he has these like strong emotions and um, he doesn't obviously want to be seen just as like muscle. And for me, so that was that, by just shifting that point of view and um so looking at how he uses his own power from you know his brain and how does he view that so that was really um yeah i mean it it's it's like the story that you really know well and then suddenly you realize right like this can be told in a different way i'm just thinking of what would be a western correlation i think there is the last temptation of christ perhaps yeah like it's, i i suppose like the I suppose the place that I'm going to in my mind is when T.H. White, T. H. White rewrote um, this sort of like a, his Arthurian quartet. Right. And we, in the final book, you know, it starts off very child, you know, it starts off very childish and King Arthur's little and he meets Merlin and they're just doing magic and turning right. into fish. And it's very, it's almost actually point for point the Disney film that they made out of The Sword and the Stone. But when you get to the fourth one and it's... Lancelot and uh, Guinevere having an affair kind of behind Arthur's back. And that's often seen as like, this is like this kind of like this sin that destroys the the Knights of the Round Table. But actually T.H. White writes it as they're just two grown-ups who like really love each other. And Arthur Arthur knows because uh, Merlin can see the future and Merlin says this is going to happen right. and by the way and the if you don't stop it the round table is going to split apart and it's going to you're going to die and what we see in the book is that he he just like Lancelot's his he loves his wife and Lancelot's his best friend and he just makes a decision I'm going to look away and as long as I don't see it I, he kind of knows it's going on but he just makes a decision I don't want to break up our friendship and instead of it being this story of like 
this evil like woman who's kind of stolen someone away and this betrayal of a friend it's like three adults navigating something very right. small and personal and they're getting older you know they're kind of like they're they're, they're into the sort of second half of their life and it's kind of i rem- i really i'm sort of almost welling up talking about it but it's like a real again it's like re it's taking that story that we're supposed to know because it's supposed to have a moral yeah. right and um and it and it changes it and it makes it about people and i think it sounds like what what you were reading there and i'm not i mean i must admit i'm not familiar with um that epic but this idea that it, it, using the parafiction to do this incredible act of empathy yeah where you take this huge story and you just go on and say, what does it mean to this one person? Yeah. Wow. Sounds awesome. And so was there, because you were obviously an enthusiastic reader, but I think like, like, like me, you know, somebody who was reading a bit above their age and found it's quite empowering. You're suddenly transported to all these worlds and you kind of can leverage that. And and I I wonder, was there a point at which you started producing, like, creating your own stories as well i think around the same time i started reading like um this particular book that i mentioned so i think around six or seven my memory is that the first thing i wrote was nonfiction, um because um i remember as a child i'd been taken to uh, um you know after the funeral in hinduism you have this right where you um go to a river which is considered sacred and um, there are some prayers and you make offerings and um, you're supposed to clap and call crows to come and eat the food and then that means you know they serve us a free and uh, so I remember being really moved I can't actually remember whose um, it was whose death rights these were Um, but I was a child and it was obviously somebody in my family and I remember being taken to it and so there's this whole story about the river as well, because again, it figures in various myths. And uh, it was really, uh, you know, a very moving um, sort of ritual. And I remember coming back and writing about it. And then I think it was just like, you know, I was writing by hand in like a page torn from one of my school notebooks. And then I didn't want anybody to see it. So I was, I was quite embarrassed about it. And then I hid it under a cushion. Wow. <laughs> Um, I think in the, because at that time we used to live in my grandmother's house. So it was like huge number of families living together. And I didn't have any sort of personal space. Like, you know, I didn't have a nook and a corner where I could hide things. So this was like, I think I thought it was a, like nobody was going to find it. And then I remember like... Uh, somebody found it and then there was a discussion around it because obviously like there were aunts like my parents my grandmother great-grandmother and so just like huge family discussion about who actually wrote this piece and it it was very strange and weird and I was like no no I just copied it from somewhere that's not me (laughs) because I wanted to I think there's maybe you're familiar with it there is also some embarrassment to writing something when when you're writing something um, especially in uh, when you're not, you know, um, if it's an environment where it's not really discussed, books and writing, etc. So it was sort of, um, I wanted to distance myself from that. And like, that's not, that's not me. And as what, a child. Can you, do you remember what the nature of the, when it was being discussed, you know, what was it, were people 
approving? Were they? What 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 did you feel like the? What was? Because I suppose this is your first experience of a critical reception yes, of your work. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, now of course, like I've been, I've sat in enough workshops to know what to do. But yeah, it was your first <laughs> workshop. Oh my gosh! And it's like your family. Right? Yeah, you, don't, wow. you don't want your family reading your work and telling you anything. Um, I can't. I can't really remember, but I think there was genuine bewilderment that somebody had written something, like especially like because I was a kid and they didn't expect me to write, and because I kept that part of me so hidden from everyone, it was genuinely a surprise. I think to everybody. Can you I know? ask, like, given that there were clear, like, there's clear embarrassment around it, there are clear sort of stakes to being found out. What then do you think, I, I suppose this is what might be asked by someone who's sort of not a writer would or, or hasn't thought of writing. It's like, what then drove you to to write, given that there were, you know, you clearly felt that there were some potentially embarrassing consequences if you were found out. What then do you think mm. made you want to write that down, given that you didn't want to show it to another living human being? You know, I know it's it is it's it's that impulse, right, within you. Because I I was a very quiet child, and I'm still a very quiet person. Like you know, I don't I don't like going out and meeting people. I'd much rather like be locked up in my house. So. Uh, and it was true of me even at that age. And I was um, even more socially awkward than I am now, which seems difficult to believe, but that's the truth. And so I didn't have that. I found it really hard to talk to people about what I was experiencing or what I thought about something. And it was much easier for me to sort of write it down. And then you feel some sort of, uh, it's like, you know, really a kind of release. It's expressing yourself. And uh, definitely at that point, I wasn't looking for like feedback or having a discussion around what I had written, you know, that came much later. At that time, I was just happy putting it down. It's a bit like, you know, having a journal and writing down your daily thoughts. And it's just having that discussion with with the page, like, you know, so sort of like you give, um, you imagine your toys or your doll to be alive and have a chat and then you've, you know, you've sort of let everything out and you feel a bit more comfortable or at ease. So it was pretty much that. And I mean, part of the reason was because, you know, even though I grew up in that house where books were revered, there were, uh, you know, my grandmother was uh, loved books. She loved English literature. And definitely, um, I think I, I got, you know, I loved reading and I think I got it from her. But there was no respect for writers. It was that how, like, it was very clear that you had to go and, you know, find a job and writing was not a livelihood. And in fact, I'd been told these stories where, um, you know, some uh, some in my family had tried to write and wanted to become a writer. And uh, my grandparents and an uncle, grand uncle that sat him down and told him, this is not going to happen. You're going to spend the rest of your life going around with a begging ball if you're going to write. So it was instilled in me that that's not a career it's not an option definitely something you can do on the side but like you know go become a doctor or an engineer or like get a career so there was there was that embarrassment that I was doing something which I shouldn't be and I didn't want anyone to know so it was you know it was quite private something for myself and of course of course any any family if you have read kind of like classic stories if you have do you know the kind of like arc of stories then you'll know that Whenever that you have a child who 
has a kind of like aspiration and you say you can't you can't do that you know that will lead to, lead yeah. to ruin they will inevitably go and follow that yeah. very thing <laughs> that's a classic mistake I, I that's really it's really interesting that that to me that feeling of um of people you know with the best intentions saying like this is this is this is a mistake you know that writing is gonna um is not a safe uh career for you um but obviously it was something that you still mattered to you and you can continued and i wondered if you could sort of like then um just talk us through like how that then continued as you as you as you kind of like grew up because as a, as a child it's often I don't mean want to say it's easy to write but often we're kind of like when we're kind of doing it we're kind of doing it for intrinsic uh reasons and then as we get sort of slightly older and slightly more socially aware our motivation and the way that the world interplays with that changes and I wondered if you could just talk a bit about how that kind of whether did you couldn't like was a writing habit a constant thing as you were growing up or did it kind of like come and go or? definitely it was writing but you know um used to write terrible poetry like many people I think and and tried to write short stories then when I was a teenager I tried to write novels which inevitably I gave up halfway so that was definitely something that um, I was doing um, you know through my childhood and later on but um, I think what my family said to me and because you know I grew up seeing how my parents for instance struggled with money and so it was very clear to me that yeah, I don't have that, you know, I don't have that luxury of uh, saying I'm going to figure out and see if I can be a writer. I don't get even a year or a month to do that. I, I was, it was very evident that I had to go out and get a job as soon as possible because, you know, of that family situation. And um, so um, I actually tried to become an accountant because I thought um, I can't be a doctor or an engineer because it, it's just beyond me. Uh, didn't want to do that at all but I thought this is something that I could do and so for my graduate degree I was studying um, you know um, economics and statistics with the intention of going into um, uh, chartered accountancy at the end of it but uh, by the end of those three years I I just you know um, there is a pleasure to having like balancing (laughs) whatever you call it like you know uh, seeing the spreadsheet and uh, there's a beauty to numbers and it's which you don't often get in writing that kind of pleasure of seeing things balanced out but I knew I couldn't do it like I knew I would be really miserable if this was my life and which is how I hit upon what I thought was this really clever idea of being a journalist because I could go and you know I would be writing for a livelihood and um, um, it would be a way of engaging with the society as well I was a pretty idealistic child and as living in a society which is very clearly very very unfair and I thought being a right being a journalist it I would be you know I could point to some of these inequities I could bring it to light and help change and that was what I saw myself doing as a child so at the end of that you know I applied for um, sort of um, a journalism diploma course and I really enjoyed that and you know I got a job became a journalist at least like the bills were being paid um, I did write um, fiction, like tried to write short stories. I was working on a novel for most of those years, but it really didn't go anywhere because, you know, um, working in India as a journalist in an Indian city, it's it's sort of full time mm. and you, you don't get a break, you know. 
the minute you wake up, you're it's you're to travel long distances. You're talking to lots of people. Then you come back in the evening uh, to the newsroom and you're sitting down and writing those stories. And so essentially, you spend spend the whole day looking at you know words. You're writing. You're editing. And then, like, you get home quite late and you don't really want to sit and look at a computer no. again. Yeah, so it was, what I realized was, it was, uh, I think th- there are actually many journalists who've written fiction, who've done it really well. But I definitely, for me, it was quite tough to do anything else at that point because I was so consumed by the work that I was doing as a journalist. Um, of course, I became much more cynical <laughs> over time. <laughs> but... Uh, um, I I would say I really enjoyed journalism. I enjoyed meeting people and talking to them, and particularly, um, I felt like I was doing something meaningful. Um, you know, because um, it it is a quiet it it is a society which with huge problems, and I was writing mostly about education, so spending like a whole lot of time talking to children why they couldn't be in school, or writing about government schools which were falling down and. Um, you know, over time I realized there's very little you can change as a journalist. You write about these things and, you know, um, people might notice for a day or two and significant change doesn't always happen. Maybe in on a few occasions it does and that's really gratifying. But, you know, those are few and far between. But I did think it was important to sort of bear witness to what was happening, uh, especially to sections of society, <clears throat> sorry, um, which people... Uh, were ignoring so I would say I was quite happy being a journalist um, of course there's like you know politics of the newsroom politics of newspaper proprietors and like that's depressing but just the work I, I enjoyed that and I didn't I didn't think I think when I was working as a journalist full-time I really didn't think about fiction at all so that would be sort of 10 or 11 years almost two, 12 years in which I didn't I didn't mind not writing fiction. I would be writing short stories, uh, like if I had a couple of days off. But more than that, I wasn't trying to write anything else. But I, I guess, like you, you know, like you say, you were going out and you were meeting. I can really imagine that you're going out, you're meeting real people. These are kind of like ongoing. There, uh, there's an immediacy there that you don't get in novel writing. There's a sort of idea or the beginning of a story to the completed uh quote unquote product going out to people you know you get to actually sort of sign off on things and then they're in the world and being read by people and so um that kind of I want to use a a word that's less pejorative sounding than treadmill because I don't mean it like that (laughs) but but going through that kind of like constant process of finishing things and having to let go of stuff you know that you couldn't you know that, that you couldn't constantly be holding on to these articles you were writing that, that at some stage you have to say this is good enough and it's going out there I imagine that like it was a reasonably I don't want to take the sort of most mercenary and uh, trite version of, of, of you doing like important stories on sort of like the welfare of children and social justice and say it must have been very good for your sort of sense of like writing neat sentences but I imagine also from a stylistic point of view having to get your point across and having limited words to do that, do you? I mean, do you think was it a, re, a useful discipline for that, or is the is the kind of like journalistic prose a completely different beast to fiction writing? I, I really struggled with that because you know um, 
as a journalist, I used to read uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who was a journalist for the longest time, and his nonfiction, I think, is quite good. Um, but he was also writing novels, and um, there were other people that I knew, but I, I just could not do it. At the back of my mind, I wanted to write fiction. I thought, I'll write a novel, but someday, you know, not when I was doing this work full time, because it was very hard for me. And then I tried to make that switch, which was after I moved to the UK. And one of the first things that I realized was I didn't have any knowledge about literature or writing, because it's not something you're taught in schools in India. And it's, you know, very focused on science and maths, and you're supposed to do well in those subjects. And that was the emphasis. And because I hadn't studied literature at all, so I had this rough idea of how you can tell a story from reading, but I was not reading closely and definitely I was not reading as a writer. And so when I tried to write sort of, you know, I tried to write short fiction and I realized actually I don't know how to write dialogue and my prose was really, it's like, you know, I was writing a news report. I was trained in, in that. And for me, like, um, because you have to be, at least in India at that time, now things are different. But at that time, you had to be quite balanced in your, you know, what you're saying in a story or in a news article. So you're getting point, different points of view, you're bringing it all together so that, you know, it's up to the reader to decide whatever they want. And I was sort of following that same principle while writing fiction, which is like a recipe for disaster. That's not what fiction is about at all. It's really about, you know, as a child, I understood that, that you're really looking at it from that one perspective and whatever strange way they have of a peculiar way they have to seeing the world, you have to be true to that. But I found, you know, making that switch from having written all these reports where I'm trying to be really objective, trying to put myself away from, you know, um, making any sort of statement. It was hard to make that switch. And um, I really struggled, which is why I took an evening course in um, creative writing in London, um, which is just, you know, one of those short courses. But that was, for me, really helpful in understanding, right, there is, this is what structure is, this is what point of view is, this is what um, you do with dialogue and uh, I think for me the most important thing was it taught me to really read closely and look for technique which I didn't you know I was reading either for the story or because I thought the sentences were beautiful and you know you're reading for the language um, but what the writing courses taught me more than writing is to really analyze a writer's technique so you just what I used to do was to like sit with the short story and like work out, okay, this is the beginning and this is the action, these are the scenes, and then just look at uh, how, how has the action progressed and where does, you know, where do they go into interior, what's the balance between interior and exterior. So it was really sort of working out over time what writing, creative writing actually involves, so writing fiction involves. Yeah. So, so like doing the, doing the, starting to work on it, you know, as part of a course, you feel like it helped you to start, I guess, like ab abstracting principles when you read, you could you could now read and sort of start uh, sort of reverse engineering, taking it apart like a clock and seeing oh, there's this piece here and this piece here and, and then start working out when you came to your own fiction, how you might put those parts back together in a new way to create something new. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was what I did not to do it's a bit like you know you have to study human anatomy first before you go into medicine you have to really know what the parts are and so for me it is 
just you know um, taking these courses and I've read like enormous number of books on writing it's just uh, I've hidden it away because it's embarrassing how many books on writing well, I, I don't see why that, why should that be embarrassing it sounds like you were really committed and fastidious and conscientious that that would be a source of that, of that rather admirable qualities right because people it essentially it's a bit like when you're writing a novel, they say, are you still writing this novel? Yeah. Like, where you're not doing that five years ago? <laughs> because it, it really takes a long time. And similarly with books, I think uh, one way to think is that all of them kind of offer the same kind of advice. Like, you know, um, the Disney kind of plotline and Volga's story, it's all revolves around that. But there's still something, I think, something new might be there. Like, that was my hope. Like, this is a book that's going to tell me how to write a novel. It never happened. But, you know, one lives in hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely, I, I, yeah, I, I definitely think that kind of like eternal optimism <laughs> that there's going to be some kind of like formula that's going to almost like I can see the matrix, like everything is going to yeah. start lining up in this amazing way. And, and occasionally, I suppose, like someone will offer an insight or give some description that, it's like having a new pair of spectacles to briefly kind of like organize the world. I think like any kind of like theory um, can be a framework that can kind of defamiliarize stuff you kind of know already, right? Yeah. Because we are Im stories are the kind of ocean we swim in as human beings. We that's how we organize our memories, you know. Yeah. Like we, um, but I suppose, I mean. I, I think maybe you're just more self-aware than me because I think I'm still in denial that I come to these <laughs> books thinking maybe this time. But again, like I, like you say, it, it doesn't have to be some sort of groundbreaking kind of like meta structure that explains everything. But even if you can just take away yeah. one thing, well, that's like one tool, one little trick that you can then use forever in your fiction. You yeah, know? So true, like yeah. even if it's by slow process of accrual... Um, you you are advancing and your ability to read the fiction that you were going to then was enhanced so then you were getting more so I, th I think they can kind of be force multipliers and some are better than others I think is the other thing as well some yeah. are great some are I'm a bit like and then you read the actual sort of stuff this person's you know the movies that they've actually <laughs> made and you're like that's those are some pretty bad films like I'm like, should I be taking your advice but then sometimes the advice is good and the movies were not so good who knows um like so I, I guess what we're creeping um uh sort of uh, inexorably towards is when you started working on um your novel that's now out and in the shop and just so I can kind of get this out the way beforehand by the way I, I hope it's all right for me to like just say the I know it's nothing to do with you but the cover to your novel is like the best cover I've seen this year it's so it's such a lovely it just looks really cool when I saw it I was like oh my gosh that looks awesome I was really excited I mean immediately before I was even into the content and stuff I was like this is I don't know like I mean I just think I just think I uh you know I just saw it and was like wow that looks really exciting I was immediately like on board to read I know we shouldn't judge a book by its cover but <laughs> but I, I, can you talk about like how you start when did you realize that you were writing this novel because sometimes it kind of creeps up on people so when i was working as a journalist is when i had the idea for um gin patrol on the purple line which is um 
because as I said, I used to interview children quite a lot. And um, I used to go into impoverished neighborhoods a fair bit. And uh, that's when I heard about these stories of disappearances of children, which is, you know, unfortunately very common in India. And uh, so there were neighborhoods where, you know, 20 or 30 kids had gone missing. And uh, so my interest was really in figuring out what is it like for the children to live through a time like that when, you know, uh, they know they can be snatched at any point on the way to school or going to the marketplace. And I sort of assumed, like, at some point I'll write a news report about that. And um, But, you know, my personal circumstances changed. We moved away from India, came to the UK. Uh, I used to think about these kids um, and uh, they're really sort of heartbreaking photographs that appear um, in newspapers and uh, um, police websites saying, you know, so-and-so is missing and the child would be five or six. And uh, I was I was very aware that many parents uh, live without knowing where their kids are for several years uh, just because, you know, um, there's systemic inequality, there's like lots of police corruption and they're not really interested in, nobody's interested in a poor child or where a poor child is because like it would have been completely different if that was happening in a rich person's house. Like, you know, there would be um, the criminal investigation task force or like the government itself would be involved but that wasn't the case. But yeah, I mean like in, in, in the UK when the right sort of child goes goes missing we have them they're still making headlines over 10 years later yeah you know that updates on the case are when it's the kind I, I i and i'm not saying that that you know that that child going missing or isn't 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 a dreadful thing as well but it's just like there's a certain type of child who can go missing for whom everybody uh seems to sort of immediately empathize with and it hits them and, and, and the newspapers yeah. are all over it and then there's these just kind of statistics yeah. where it's almost like oh that's kind of the people can sort of all strangely accept as if that's the kind of way of the world yeah i think that that the question of empathy it really comes up when you can see yourself in like if you can think oh this could have been my child then the whole situation is different but uh, because the mainstream discourse is so set by, you know, uh, middle class Indians, they don't really, uh, many of them, I would say, wouldn't, uh, at least on a day-to-day basis, are unable for various reasons, I guess, to be involved in, you know, um, uh, just raising their voice about uh, children from poor families. And because so much of my work had been about, you know, uh, kids like that, uh, I was interested in them and um, these kids were really sort of uh, very funny and um, quite sarcastic or didn't want to answer your questions, they would roll your eyes and so uh, for me they were very real and uh, so I think when I, you know, um, in my one of the first creative writing courses I took, which was an evening course, um, we had to submit an extract for a novel, like I think that was the only assignment that was there. And I tried to write the story about, um, you know, children disappearing from this neighborhood. And it was sort of an Omnesian narrator. It didn't really work. And so I had to sort of put it aside and I wrote something else. Uh, so I worked on that novel for, I think, three or four years. Um, I finished it. I sent it to two agents who both said it was like um, 
you know, praised certain aspects of the writing, but said this is not go- it's not something they can sell. So I put it aside. Um, I wrote some short stories because I thought, do I really want to try writing a novel? <laughs> spent like so long, like yeah. t- it's a long time. You're spending that time with those characters, and uh, yeah, you have an emotional I- investment to it. Yeah, yeah of course. It's quite, it was quite distressing at the time, and I thought maybe I can't do this. And yeah, that's the other thing. Like you think about everything you've heard since your childhood about how this is like it's not something for someone like you. And I definitely had internalized that, and I thought this sounds, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it. And so I tried writing short stories because primarily because you can finish a short story within a certain amount of time, yeah. you can see its end in sight. With a novel, you never know how long it's going to take. So I did that and um, I submitted it to some competitions and it was shortlisted. So that was like a sort of boost, like, okay, maybe somebody does want to read it. So then um, I think after a year and a half or so, I tried writing a second novel, which again, I finished, uh, but, um, I didn't think it was any good, so I didn't, I mean, it needed a whole lot of work. I knew that, and I didn't really know where to begin or to end, which is when I started, um, I applied to UEA, and um, I did my master's part-time, which is when I tried writing Gin Patrol on the Purple Line again. Uh, So the difference was that in that, I think it, it was around, maybe, I'm not really sure, God, like, you know, time is all blurred in my head but maybe seven or eight years had passed since I first tried writing it. But in that time, I'd written several short stories with um, child narrators, and like I had those discussions, uh, you know, with in workshops, for instance, like how do you, uh, like what goes into writing a child narrator, and like really looked at the theory of it as well. So I think it was just why I could, so I was writing it essentially for my dissertation. Um, this particular book, and I had Jay's voice. Jay's a nine-year-old narrator who's the main character, and uh, so once I had his voice, and uh, you know, I, I knew um, how to tell the story, sort of how to write it from their point of view, because what I really wanted to do was to write it from the children's perspective, and you know, putting their story at the heart of it. And I had really struggled before, but uh, through his point of view, I felt like. Um, this one way to achieve it yeah so there was like a moment there where um that kind of because i guess like there re- especially with your sort of training your background in journalism you sort of had it really instilled into you that there are like so many different ways to slice a story there's so many different perspectives and so when you're looking at this as a sort of phenomenon or as a kind of like the overstory of this thing that's happening um there were a lot of ways into that and it took you it took a while before you found can you talk a bit more about because I feel like voice is this funny thing where it kind of whenever I'm having discussions with like literary fiction uh, writers or about literary fiction it's a kind of term that we kind of knock about when I talk about talk with agents or editors we talk about voice and they say oh you know like I feel like the number one thing that like agents and editors like really respond to is like a strong voice in a story but almost but there's like an assumption that we all know what we're talking about in a way that that term what a voice is sort of never really gets unpicked and I'm very aware when I speak to people sort of from outside you know genre fiction writers even that they'll kind of 
that it that it is actually slightly opaque to people outside it. And I wonder if you could just like drill down into like how you found this voice or how you developed this voice and what it allowed you to do that simply you know writing a kind of omniscient uh sort of more distance uh narrative might not have done oh so it was um so essentially the main thing was writing from a child's perspective and writing from a child's point of view means um i think the reader has to do some work in it as well because the child doesn't understand um, yeah, because that, I guess saying. from like a lot of people's perspective, they're like, well, the first thing a child does is there's it actually just excludes some things that you can talk about because the child doesn't know. So you're yeah. immediately, you know, you're denying yourself some stuff you can talk about. Well, why should that? I suppose, you know, from the outside, people would go, well, doesn't that make writing the story a lot harder? Yeah. Uh, for me, because it was such it, it's a story that goes to really dark places and. I needed, um, you know, a voice that could counter that sort of darkness with some humor, with some like lightness. And for me, that really came from the memory of these kids that I had interviewed who were, you know, uh, you think they should behave in a certain way because these circumstances are so dire, but you're not really thinking of that when you're talking to them because their personalities are so strong and, um, they don't want your pity and so I mean unless you're using that pity to for their own benefit like yeah right like you know oh look at me like I'm in this really terrible situation so you should give me some money so it's it's a very like cleverly thought out reason as to why they behave in certain ways and so I wanted to use that sort of humor uh, you know in those interactions that I had with the kids to create this child um, who is essentially a composite of those kids that I'd interviewed. And uh, so what I, what I wanted his voice to do was to really stand out so that you don't go down that route of pitying someone because they're poor or because they're living in these really difficult circumstances when, you know, in a neighborhood where kids are disappearing and nobody really cares and no one is out there to help you. But even... There is some resilience, even in that situation, you know, because uh, there's a refusal to be passive, to just accept that and sit down. So, uh, yes, yeah, so it was really through his voice that I could achieve that. But, um, you know, voice is different, different things, I think. Sometimes you have the voice of a writer in the sense that you can read a book and you can tell who has written it because they have that very particular style of constructing sentences or the way in which they use similes or metaphors like I think you could just pick up on Daji's book on you know I'm saying Michael on Daji because uh, I really like his writing but you could really pick any of his books read a paragraph and you know it's it is him because it's very you know this sort of there'll be some sort of stunning image it's very lyrical or there's a peculiar uh, there is you know or the way the sentences are constructed so I think in his case that would be his voice in my case, I wanted the voice to be really uh, reflective of a child who is growing up in a basti in, you know, uh, in India and um, reflect the sort of uh, rhythm of his sentences. And he is obviously thinking and speaking in Hindi and using bits of Urdu, but I'm writing in English. So there's a lot of translation. And within the translation, I still wanted to um, make sure that... Um, the language reflected how he speaks and as a child you know children have sort of very peculiar expressions you would know um, just 
how they see things and um, so I wanted the voice to stay true to all that and I really found out like I want to say I did something special but uh, it was definitely there was like work involved in terms of reading lots of books with child narrators watching films that had you know told through the eyes of children um, and figuring out how that was done well but uh, in writing this it was essentially you know you write the first sentence for me that that's how I write so like I wrote the first paragraph and um, and then I realized several things about this kid like this is a kid who believes in the supernatural which I didn't know before I started writing it and uh, so I just you know I started with this really vague idea of who this child is and then you know just by writing him that I really got to know who he is as a person and that's definitely how I write because um, I don't know there's something in my head which sort of prevents me from um, chalking out things very clearly and you know you're given these I think some writing teachers and definitely some writing books I would know because I've read so many of them mm. <laughs> um, tell you to sit down and um, you know you have 20 questions about characters or you have uh, you work out their backstory and you write sort of uh, I know writers who write like an entire book about their character before actually you know starting their novel and I think that's fine but you have to find out what works for you for me if I know things um, if I know everything then you know f there's, there's no reason to write for me there's definitely a process of discovery and like I, I find things out at the same time as my characters I learn more about them by writing about them so that was so I didn't start with yes he has this voice and this is what it's going to be it was just figured it out by writing him you know so it, it sounds like you had some of these ideas and then I'm just because uh, I, 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 I've always got a slightly sort of impish sort of desire to to separate uh, authors into the great divide of uh, discovery writers and planners I'm, I'm constantly trying to sort of foment this kind of like completely non-existent factional war between the two sides as if we all need to pick a side and then and then attack each other so I, I know it's great that you sort of feel like whatever works for people is is fine but also just to to communicate to writers who write in a different way what it feels like to write in the other way because I think sometimes we we imagine ourselves to be of one camp out of us a, a habit and actually sometimes different books require different strategies and it sounds to you your sort of what discovery writing feels like to you is sort of fit is sort of like almost like testing a couple of lines of voice and then uh, sort of it sounds like you're almost like listening to them you said um in that first paragraph you didn't know there was a belief in the supernatural until you read him saying that and then you're like oh okay uh and then you responded to that and incorporated that into things and kind of sort of so if that's true and kind of almost like you then follow the the consequences and the logic of that and that starts to establish um quote-unquote rules for the voice yeah. is that is that it sounds like you're almost like doing sort of pausing stopping and listening to the voice and then adjusting your expectations before you continued is that is that a reasonable way of describing it it is but it sounds too sort of you know, because so much of writing for me, it involves just plain hard work. It's just turning up at the desk and writing. And 
So whenever people say, at least, you know, uh, before this book, if someone told me or my writer, uh, the character was talking to me and I was just typing, I was just like a typist and I would just think, no, that's not possible uh, because it is, it is, you have to make these, you're constantly making decisions, right? With every sentence, you're making decisions like what word goes in here? Is, is it going to be a full stop or a comma or semicolon? And but with me for this with this book definitely I felt like this character was a real person like you know I felt like he was there in the room with me, and um, but as you say, you know I did I have a rough I had a rough idea what I wanted to write about and it was I didn't know who the characters were but which came by writing, uh, but you are definitely taking various decisions. Um, as to where the story is going, I guess, um, which is something, you know, it's definitely, it's what the characters tell you. And um, as you write more, you sort of know how they'll respond to whatever events are happening. And so, so definitely there is, there is, I think people can write in any whichever way. And um, I definitely wish I was the planner, like, you know, because I have OCD in real life and I would like things to be neat and I would like there to be a spreadsheet and so to sort of and follow it down to the T. But somehow it doesn't, uh, It's that's not how it works. And it, it, it does come up during editing because with editing, I definitely had uh, a spreadsheet and, you know, I had um, sort of posted notes with what what is happening in each chapter to look at does it flow so that's those are decisions you take during the editing process and I guess if you're a planner then you know the good thing is that your editing is probably much more simpler than it would be otherwise I think yeah I mean like and I also found like with this idea of that I that I, I tend to catch myself thinking of one as being more virtuous than the other or somehow more more artistic and then you know when I get in that way with sort of writing intuitively or or you know following a voice or, or whatever then when you know then I start to become embarrassed about having to go back and edit the voice because if I was listening to the character <laughs> then how could they have made a mistake that's just their authentic voice how can I change it and of course like you say when you go back you you discover things about them later on that necessitate going back and tweaking details earlier on to make that fit to make it look like you knew there was all a seamless kind of cloth and you knew what you were doing all the time when of course there's a lot more sort of sneaking and airbrushing and uh moving it around and to say that it's a character on the shoulder i mean at some point you felt like you were listening to the character a bit but of course you'd done colossal amount of preparatory work in kind of getting to know the place yeah. and the people who lived in it and you'd been thinking about them and they've been kind of living in your head and you'd written short stories and versions of this so when you came to write that fir- those that first paragraph uh y- y- that wasn't actually the the first paragraph that was you know draft whatever of the of the book so i i guess even then it kind of disguises a huge amount of stuff that you know for want of a better of a better word is kind of a form of planning right yeah absolutely and um you know people sort of imagine or at least i did you know that it was you, you just you had a muse and then you just wrote and everything was perfect and i, I mean even now you know i'm 
constantly frustrated by every sentence I write. I'm like, oh my God, like, can you not do better? <laughs> so it's just, I think you have to really remember it is, it is a tremendous amount of work. And I mean, no different from the kind of work that most people do in their daily lives. It is, you know, like my husband does something entirely different and he works quite hard. And it's same with writing. It's not sort of, it's because it's, there's almost sort of like this mystical idea of what goes on in writing. Like it's like magic, it's like imagination, like some fairy taking over and the words flowing. And that is not at all how it is. It's just, even if I say I'm not a planner, there is, you know, you have to really sit down and take decisions at some stage of the process to create a book. Um, yeah, something that works. Can I, I, I suppose I'm sort of taking a slight punt on this, but, um, someone's speculating slightly but when I sp- a lot of authors I've spoken to when they look back at, n- at a novel they've written uh, they sort of realise that they were writing the novel in part to kind of wrestle with an insoluble problem you, you know like you know humans grieving or something like that you know the fact that you can't protect everyone or some difficult it's clear that there is a kind of not insol not the problem isn't insoluble but a problem that is monolithic and as you've sort of said um uh people seem sort of like hair tearingly indifferent to it to, to get them to look at what's going on that this is a thing that's happening and I was wondering if in the writing of the book in the writing of Gin Patrol has had has you did your understanding of what you were writing about shift at all or has your thoughts about it changed or how did it sort of affect your processing of what you were writing about I think for me, it definitely brought me closer to what uh, the families were experiencing because, uh, um, you know, as even as a reporter, when you're talking to people and uh, they talk to you about uh, their losses or loss of life, for instance, or you know, loss of livelihood, um, you, you do have empathy as a person, as a human being, just like I, I guess you would if you're reading reading a news report. But writing it for me was was quite, I would say it was quite different. And um, I think even though it is a very particular problem, the disappearances of children and it's happening in a neighborhood and you might think this is, you know, it is absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, but, you know, everyone experiences loss at, at uh, some point in their lives and or you have to sort of grapple with uncertainty of not knowing um, what's going to happen. Um, whether you're safe, whether your family is safe. And I think these are sort of universal concerns. And it's something that was definitely at, um, because I wrote it during a difficult time in my life. And it was, uh, so writing it, in fact, was one way of understanding these kind of horrors that are happening around around you. And for me, it was just, um, part of it was also sort of appreciating the, sort of you know that depths of fear that people um have to sort of face um in on their in their daily lives and also that kind of you know how how do you deal with that loss and how do you still get up and go about your day and those are the sort of questions 
that I was asking myself and you know the characters in my book have to sort of face those questions as well so writing that in a way was um, I couldn't um, I, it's it's very hard to um, as events are happening it's very hard to write about them in real time in fiction I think I know now everybody's rushing to read about pandemics and reading the plague mm. by yeah. Camus and but in real time, it would be really hard to sit and write the plague as it's unfolding, maybe for some writers. But I think for most most writers would struggle with that because you do need some distance. Yeah, you could kind of you can kind of maybe put together some sort of factual reportage. Yeah. But to have something with, I guess, thematic resonance and uh, to with that sort of necessary... I guess the structure as well, that because you're often picking and choosing yeah. and, and kind of putting things together in a an arc, it is it, it is harder to do that without some 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 distance. I know people have done it, but it's I it's it certainly difficult. more of a challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. And so for me, this is some way of obliquely looking at what all of us experience at some point. This the specifics of the situation might be quite different, but I think uh, you know. Um, anyone who knows sort of laws or if you're living with not knowing where someone is or what's going to happen or if if you have like a particular kind of fear about what's going to happen I think what's in the book is quite universal as to what even though it's a child who's experiencing you're seeing it mostly through a child's eyes it's I think it's still sort of uh, it speaks to that larger situation yeah I think I'd sort of something I think one of the really tricky things about reading the book is because it, the thing that really kind of got me, I think, is because there's a real bounce to the narrator. It's, a, 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 you know, actually really wonderfully sort of this kind of helter-skelter. We, they, they don't, there's not a lot of kind of messing around to to to, to reflect on in the way you know when I read um as much as I like I really love um William Golding I I feel like when he sort of writes things like Lord of the Flies and stuff that occasionally he just gets bored of writing children and will just kind of go into this kind of like cod sort of 1950s anthropologist voice <laughs> and go but he could have never have known the terrible and you're like I want a, a really sickening part of me wonders if that's what got the Nobel Prize was like these moments of like actually breaking faith with the narrator. Yeah. But what I find really difficult, and I mean difficult in a very good way with, um, in, in your book is the humor actually tricks me into being, into quickly sort of letting down my guard. Like the, it's much easier to, um, even though right from the start, right, there's like horror, there's horrible yeah. things happening. Um, because there's also humour as well and there's kind of like uh, uh, a real sense of kind of like this wonderful specificity and all these different kind of characters we're being introduced to um, I kind of like part of me just lets down my guard and goes oh this is like um, th this is exciting and there's, there's some humour here I'm, I'm, I'm going to let this in and then it's too like, and then it's too late and then you're like oh no what have I done oh no like they, I care about you're really selling now. my book <laughs> no I, but it's but it's it, it, it's it, it, it's true I mean that's the basis of kind of like any 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 you know like I think in the same way a friend of mine who um, does you know comedy on stage but has sort of said uh, 
comedy isn't a isn't a genre it's a strategy like it's one thing that you use in this and actually all the different emotions are heightened when you put them together because the moments of humor make us go hey it's safe to be involved in this and then the moments of of tragedy actually often make the humor funnier and more poignant like uh, but i i just one i wondered if you could talk a bit about um like how you how you then deal with this idea of i i you were talking earlier about like the need to be balanced within a piece of journalism versus you know writing a novel but in the same way like a novel you know the dialectic of fiction it is a polyphonic form we do have different characters with different viewpoints on the world yeah and yet i've heard you know i can't remember who it was who said that like to to tell a story is inescapably to take a moral stance and i wonder if you could just talk about that tension between representing lots of different humans who see the world in different ways who maybe don't see themselves as villains or heroes, you know, see themselves as all the protagonists of their own story, and a story that actually, like with the epic at the beginning you were talking about, is in a sense picking a side. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that that tension and how you navigate it in this. So for me, I think when I was writing it, it was really that... um, Because I lived in India for most of my life, and, you know... um, Indian readers hate stories about poverty because there's this notion that um, it's what the West wants to read and Indian writers writing about poverty are essentially selling your soul and, um, you know, giving these Western publishers what they want. So I was very aware of that, um, the whole controversy, it's been going on for so long and, you know, uh, books about poverty um, or movies about poverty in India they win Oscars, they win Booker and so that it's an ongoing discussion and I knew that people many people would be put off in India picking just picking up my book because it's about poverty and so I was very aware of that, I was very aware that there's this huge risk when you're writing about poverty that you show people as you know as I was just saying you don't see anything beyond their circumstances you're just like filled with pity for their situation and so for me the important thing was each of these people you know they stand out on their own so when you go away from the book you remember them and you don't really uh, think about yeah of course these circumstances are dire but you know you remember how they uh, stood up to those like these really dark forces sort of pressing them down to the earth so to speak so it was um i think that was really my main concern um how do i write it without romanticizing the subject without sort of sentimentalizing it in any way and so that characters are just characters and um i think it was really just focusing on jay who has these really weird and stupid interests which you know not at all any of mine but like he watches um, these cop shows on TV and they're based on real shows in India, which are hugely popular. Um, you know, they've been running for 18, 20 years. Like shows don't run that long, but these ones have because people are interested in watching these reconstructions of crime. And like it would be quiet. You know, I found I for research, I watched many of them. And I just like, I was just watching with like my hands over my face because it's like so gruesome and so pulpy and uh, like filled with horror because these are real stories as well. And 
and there's also that impulse you want to know who did it right like that's the reason why crime is so popular and crime shows are so popular so that's um so all of that was there and for me it was really just uh i just want to stay true to whoever whoever point of view was there in the book so for the most part it's jay and um you know like um he he is a product of a very patriarchal society and he has certain benefits even though he doesn't understand it um he you know compared to his sister he has a much much more easier life and he doesn't fully he doesn't realize the extent of it and he has sort of picked up these ideas about women's place in society from others and so for me it was much more easier to write you know from the girl's point of view because i i know what that's like i know what it's like to grow up in that society which doesn't think you can do anything and tries to put you down at uh, you know every every step of the way and but to write jay i had to really be in his head and sort of um you know um and he is influenced by what he's heard about women and so he's constantly being challenged by the figures of women around him who don't believe, behave in those ways he thinks they should so those were sort of like those things that i had to do which is for me it would have been really easy to not um you know to portray women as i think women should be portrayed but that's not his viewpoint so i had to make that like that was so it was really just looking at the world through his eyes and he's just interested in sort of what he sees at his eye level especially like animals and like if you're a kid um you know all these stalls of food and it will be on display and it will again be at your eye level so he's he's a bit greedy so he's constantly thinking about food he's thinking about animals and like cats and goats and yeah his dog so um I felt like that was the only way in which I could write the story was just, you know, um just inhabit the character as fully as possible. Which is part of the reason why I think I said like in the beginning, uh, you know, I didn't want to plan things out especially with a book like this because you can go in with like as a reporter you're trying to if you're writing about a particular, you know, a terrible situation, um you're writing because you want that to change. I felt that when you're writing fiction um it's really uh like you know when you're writing from a character's perspective like a child's perspective a child is not looking at systemic inequality or the like he's not thinking like it's so unfair that I have to queue for 3 hours for, like my mother and my sister have to queue for 3 hours for water for him it's just his reality so there was that like you know register change which i had to do in my head as well and writing sort of two novels which didn't go anywhere possibly help to do that i so uh, that's re- so in a way y- y- it seems i i i i i know it's going to seem like i'm being sort of uh i'm i'm being sort of over flattering if i say this a kind of act of bravery to kind of like write with that level of empathy but to sort of trust that you can write a character um following a ca- the following the logic of a character's point of view even when you know there's some things that they believe that you don't believe and sort of trusting that you're going to get i mean that 
for all your sort of talk of saying that you know you came out of journalism feeling maybe a bit more cynical, that seems to me like a like a, a profoundly optimistic and human thing to do. You know, to go, I'm going to kind of follow this character, these characters, and I sort of trust that I don't have to sort of like peremptorily kind of like edit them that just by them by honestly sort of like being in their world uh i trust not only them but also the reader to kind of get it i was just going to say perhaps i was too very very naive because you see i had two books two novels and one collection of short stories so essentially three books which didn't go anywhere so when i was writing this there was no reason to expect this would be any different so Essentially, I was writing for my dissertation. Um, at the most, my faculty at UEA was going to see it and, you know, fellow students. But beyond that, I didn't really have any expectations. And I wonder if I would take those decisions now because now I have got reader feedback and, you know, whether I want to or not. I've been, like, very desperately trying, deliberately trying to avoid reviews and hearing stuff, but people do tell you and you know you get to hear what others have to say and it'll be interesting to see if that changes anything for me but definitely when I was writing this novel I was writing for someone like myself and as a reader I'm quite happy to do some work you know so if there is a character who is sort of um, you know the whole question of likable characters or not I'm not really bothered by that like uh, even if it's an unlikable character I can you know I can understand why a writer might um like it's just a reflection of how people are in real life and um i was sort of hoping that you know who was reading the book would be like me which is incredibly naive and stupid <laughs> but <laughs> because i had no expectation when i was writing it that this would get published or it would go anywhere you know i just i just took that like i took that leap of faith so i guess the question i want to then ask is now <sighs> And I really hope that my saying how much I love the book doesn't isn't like creating another voice in your head of going <laughs> like because I know I've spoken to so many authors and I've had this experience myself where like actually the things that made me freeze up on my second novel I'm not suggesting I've got this power but just in general <laughs> it, it were not negative reviews where I was just kind of like well I kind of I kind of expected that like yeah yeah you know like come and sit down and join me around the fire like you think I'm a rubbish writer I that is confirming my worldview you're a friend of mine it's what was difficult was when people said I love I'm sorry I've managed to engineer this question in a way that I'm now talking about people liking my work but like people when people were going I love this and then I try and sit down and write something new and I go you're gonna I'm gonna disappoint you you're not going to like this. This is different. And I would imagine these people who I now had a responsibility to, who had liked my work, coming to it, and their faces sort of falling, as if to say, oh, well, it was nice when it, while it lasted, Tim. Uh, it's clear you've let it go, go to your head, and uh, I don't think I'll be reading... You know, like, I, that's... And, and it, that was what made it hard, right? And so many other... So how long did it take you to write the second? Oh my god! <laughs> ah! It took um, it took ages. It took me so the second one. So the first one, how long? The first did it one take? took me probably four years. Two okay. years of um, research and then two years of writing. The second one took me maybe three years, but that was like. Th- but it, it's a follow up to the second one, so it's the same world. So some of the stuff had already been grounded, already been done. But I found it. Um, 
oh just like <laughs> just like walking head down through a gale of knives oh, each wow. of those knives being my own sort of like self-critic just going you are rubbish and stupid it's i found it really hard i'm really challenging and i um and not every author i know has done that but like certainly and also speaking to authors who've had you know a lot further on in their careers it's clear that that's often a sort of undulating wave and right. that they're uh they'll have real successes They'll have moments where they just give up. They go, no one's going to read my work anymore. Um, oh, whoa, I'm free. And kind of like write a, like a novel, almost like a kind of like the angry kind of like, I'm going to quit my job email that right. they finally get to tell everyone what they think. And they go, no one's going to read this. So I can, well, I'm, you know what? I will put this in because it's for me. No one, And then that suddenly connects with loads of people, does really well. And then they, and then for their next book, they're locked up because they're like, I have now have a fan base and these people might not like what I'm going to do. And then maybe there's a few books where they really struggle and then they let go again because those books they didn't enjoy and they go, well, I'm not going to write. I can't write anymore. Oh, I'll just write this thing for myself and so on. So I think it's it's all about... You know, I, I for me, it's like about attachment, about attachment to the identity of writing, about attachment to, you know, for me, writing was always a something. It was almost like a magic spell that I had to periodically cast to stop people seeing the real me, you know. Right. And I, I, I think whatever assumptions, whatever writing was supposed to be solving in our lives, um, <laughs> when the book is out there and it's kind of the morning after that's when those assumptions kind of get tested. And even if the book solves, you know, even if, you know, someone like me who maybe, you know, has a bunch of self-esteem issues and thinks, well, if I write a book and people like it, then that will make me a worthwhile person. Well, yeah, for now, and now you're going to have to keep that up. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I think it's... I, I wonder if, like, how you found writing since... The, because it sounds like you actually found it quite difficult all the time so in a way kind of like nothing yeah. is nothing has nothing changed, has changed. <laughs> yeah i do have uh, you know enormous amounts of self-doubt and i think partly it comes from you know having grown up in that family where um this was it is still not seen as something you do you know like um when I was a journalist, that was seen as a proper career. So now it is like, what has she done? Like, uh, just making up things. And so it is It is still quite difficult. And uh, so you're constantly, I don't know how it is for, you know, you have this imaginary writer who's usually male and kind of just sitting down and typing out words. Like, I don't oh, know. Probably on a manual typewriter as oh, well for something. some reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... You, you don't measure, like if I compare myself to that imaginary person, like I'm nowhere because I constantly struggle with self doubt and like writing one sentence is like for me it's like, you know, all those voices in your head which tell you you should be doing something more constructive. And actually there is this um for any of your um listeners this is a wonderful essay by this writer whose name I've completely forgotten, but it's called Envy, and it's about being... Would you know that? It's, um, I, don't, I don't know it, but I uh, can certainly... If I look, I'll look it up, and if I can find it, then I'll put a link in the show okay, notes great. to today's episode. So it's about so people... being the partner of a famous male writer, and she being a writer herself. And so this whole thing is about that envy they have in their relationship, 
um, how this had changed their relationship and also um, I think one of the things that struck me was that she said that you know he had that uh, like this imaginary writer in my head he had that confidence that he could sit down and write and he he even as readers which she you know her books haven't received that kind of acclaim um, so readers are sort of <laughs> magical unicorns for yeah. her um, so like when she sits down to write she thinks I should be editing or you know I should be uh, doing something else which will bring in money and so for me this has been this constant it, it is in a constant loop in my head and like nothing has changed so it was the same uh, I could trick myself so essentially I tricked myself like what you said um, when I was doing the masters it was like I'm writing for my workshop I'm writing for my dissertation and so it's constantly like you're telling yourself you're not writing a novel so I think that it's a trick to for me to write because if you think novel it's like so huge you can get through all that so it's essentially about fooling myself it sounds so stupid but that's what it is to kind of uh, just saying I have to write 100 words today and uh, you know then see how it goes and some days you can't write even like two words <laughs> yeah that's how it is and yeah um i'm writing something i think for you it sounds like because you had um it was connected to your first novel so there was an added element of pressure with the second um i'm writing something entirely different it's a historical novel and you know um no children in sight <laughs> 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 yeah hopefully um I, I am struggling with it, to be honest, but, you know, I always struggle with my writing, so nothing new. We'll see. You know what? Like, that seem, that is actually the most sort of... I, 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 You know, in a way, I'm sad to report, but that is actually the most healthy kind of, like, sort of <laughs> way that I... The, 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 the novelists I always worry about, the ones who I think inevitably really hit like a wall and have a horrible time are the ones who finished their first novel and went go I went off track quite a few times with this first one the second one I'm going to plan it so I can do it much quicker um, and, and that is just they're struggling and these kind of apparent missteps are part of the process yeah. and the moment you try and sort of expedite it by cutting them out and going I'm, I'm not uh, you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna speed it up by not making any mistakes this time that's a kind of perfectionism that just leads to yeah. doom right and so you know if you're giving yourself space to struggle and have difficult days and stuff then um y- you know I think you're much more likely to get through it we'll see you fingers crossed well. <laughs> um thank you so much for coming on the show today I really really uh, appreciate it and thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's yeah. really fun. It's good to talk about craft because you don't get to get asked these questions often. Yeah. You're, you're most welcome. And everybody listening, um, I'll put a link in the uh, show notes to the book. Please um, do check it out. And um, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.